From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, endocyclophotocoagulation in uncontrolled glaucoma. The end point is, is a visible whitening and contraction of every part of the cilia processes you can see. First this. I travel a lot. It's one of the perks of the work I do. As fantastic as Hangzhou or Jaipur or Barcelona are, I'm always amazed at how beautiful my own country is. Nowhere is this more in evidence than in Park City, Utah. Words truly fail. That's why I'm so happy that iWorld holds its surgical summit in Park City. Join me in this collegial, informal, and highly educational event in one of the most beautiful places on earth. Go to surgicalsummit.iworld.org. That's surgicalsummit, one word, iworld.org. I'll see you on the slopes. Before there was MIGS, there was endocyclophotocoagulation and ECP still has its role. The therapeutic bandwidth of ECP is broader than most mixed procedure, and its mechanism of action is quite different and perhaps complementary to other glaucoma therapies. But is it the right procedure for, let's say, uncontrolled glaucoma? Michael Smith wanted to find out, and I'm happy to welcome Dr. Smith as my guest today. ECP, endocyclophotocoagulation, is often grouped with MIGS procedures. But in fact, ECP predates the whole MIGS movement. When was ECP developed and what evidence supports its efficacy? Cyclodestruction has been a, a recognized form of pressure control since the 1930s and, and laser goes back to around the 1970s. Since around the early 1990s, diode laser has been the standard of care. And that's because it's absorbed by the, the melanin cells of the ciliary processes with, with minimal scleral damage. The problem with transscleral diodes, uh, however, is not so much damage to the sclera, but rather the collateral damage to the surrounding structures and the unpredictability of how, how it works. And, and that's tended to mean that most glaucoma specialists restrict its use to eyes with poor visual potential or, or very high risks uh, from invasive surgery. So in the 1990s, ECP was developed as a way to overcome some of these limitations of transcleral diodes. So basically, because we can directly visualize the ciliary processes when applying the laser, the collateral damage is less, and so the risk of, of visual loss and hypotony are, are much reduced. So, so ECP has really been around now for 20 years. However, there's been a, a, more of, a, of an interest in it over the last five to 10 years simply because the technology of the probes has improved, so the, the definition. And d during this time, there's been a gradual increase in the evidence base. Most of these studies are, are retrospective. There are a few non-randomized prospective studies. And, and the results, I think it's fair to say, have been quite variable. And that's often due to varied case mix or, or definitions of success. So, for instance, some of the early studies uh, looked at neovascular glaucoma and eyes with multiple failed surgeries, and the more recent ones have dealt with patients with controlled glaucoma who needed cataract surgery for visual lesions. And, and in particular, with respect to our study, most of the studies uh, have only looked at the outcome for the first one or two years, so, so no long-term data. 
Michael, how does ECP distinguish itself anatomically from MIGS procedures? So, so simply put, it, it targets the, the inflow of aqueous, not, not the outflow. The laser is applied to the ciliary processes. There is thermal damage to these processes as a result of the laser, and, and this reduces aqueous production, and the eye pressure comes down. Is ECP generally performed as a standalone procedure or in conjunction with cataract surgery? Usually with cataract surgery. Now, practically speaking, it can't be done in psychic patients uh, due to difficulty in accessing the ciliary processes and the, and the very high risk of inducing cataract. It, it can be done as a standalone procedure in seraphic patients. But I think anecdotally, in, in some of the evidence suggests that uh, it doesn't work as well in this situation. Uh, this is likely to be partly due to the effect of the phaco itself on, on the pressure, but also we find in pseudophagic patients that access to the ciliary processes to, to actually apply the laser is, is more difficult, and that's due to the capsular bag fibrosis. There, there are a few situations, so it does seem to work well in people who are pseudophagic and have had previous uh, glaucoma tube surgery, but these are quite a small group, and the evidence base, again, is, is lacking. The field of non-transcleral glaucoma procedures has really blossomed. Where does ECP fit into this landscape? So as, as we, we discussed in, in some depth in our, in our paper, the, the place of ECP in glaucoma management remains unclear. The, the exact place remains unclear. And I think that also really applies to, to a lot of these other procedures, so the trabectome and, and really all of the mixed procedures. And that's really because the long-term uh, results are lacking. There's no, there's no head-to-head studies uh, comparing uh, ECP with, the, with MIGS or with uh, trabectome. But in looking at the studies and comparing them, it may well be that ECP occupies a similar place in, in this landscape as trabectome and the non-transcleral mixed procedures. We're going to be discussing a patient population with uncontrolled glaucoma. What is the established manner by which uncontrolled glaucoma is treated? To some extent, that varies by institution and also individual surgeons. But, but generally speaking, with open-angle glaucoma patients, they have one eye drop as initial treatment, and we can increase that to, to three or four agents if necessary. Selective laser trabecoplasty tends to be used either as a primary treatment or used early in the pathway uh, before we get to more invasive surgical or laser procedures. In, in the traditional pathway, however, is after SLT and drops, then we tend to look at trabeculectomy with mitomycin, and if that fails, then later we're looking at glaucoma drainage device surgery. What was the question that your study sought to answer? So, so just to reiterate, there are uh, quite you know there's a lot of published papers in ECP, most of limited follow-up, and much of the initial evidence was for secondary and complex glaucoma. There's a, a number of patient papers recently looking at ECP areas as an adjunct to cataract surgery in, in glaucoma patients who where the glaucoma is controlled. Now, now we tried to answer a slightly different question. In a phacic patient with uncontrolled glaucoma who hasn't had previous drainage surgery, is phaco ECP a good long-term option? Can I get you to describe the design of your study? Yeah, so simply a retrospective case series. What were your criteria for success? So in, in this study, it was easier to, to define failure. So failure was defined by one of two criteria. So number one, IOP over 21 or less than six or not reduced by 20% from baseline at the one, two, or three-year time point. And then the second criteria for failure was further laser surgery to reduce IOP at any time point 
Michael, I'm a comprehensive surgeon. I do cataract surgery. I do MIGS. I don't do endocycloprotocoagulation. Can I get you to walk me through a, a typical procedure? And on a sort of side note, is the protocol for this procedure standardized in terms of the number of degrees treated and, and the post-operative regimen? Okay, so so with fake OE PCP, you would you would proceed with the cataract surgery in the in the usual manner, and a post intraocular lens insertion, you would remove the viscoelastic from the capsule and bag, and then refill the anterior chamber uh, with viscoelastic. At that stage, depending on the size of your phaco incision, you would enlarge it to 2.5, and also make an additional 2.5 incision uh, as 180 degrees to the main incision. It is possible to do it through one single incision, but it only allows you access around 270 degrees. So in some surgeons who will do this procedure on people with controlled glaucoma to try and reduce drop dependency, they will do it through one incision to minimize the stigmatism. In our study, all of the people had uncontrolled glaucoma, and therefore we wanted to do as much as we wanted to do 360-degree ACP, and to do that requires two incisions. Uh, once the DC probe is set up and the laser attached, you use viscoelastic again to inflate the ciliary sulcus opposite the incision, and you pass the endoscope through the, through the wound and visualize the ciliary processes. So the, there is not a, a, a standard number of, treat, of uh, treatment shots. You visualize the ciliary processes and you attempt to treat all the visible areas and what the end point is, is a visible whitening and contraction of every part of the ciliary processes you can see. So once, once you've achieved 360 degree treatment, you remove the viscoelastic and then uh, intracameral antibiotics. Uh, most people uh, who do this procedure also use intracameral dexamethasone, although that's an off-license use and can't, not all types of dexamethasone can be used intracamerally. Now, uh, post-operatively, uh, I, and, and again, it's pretty standard, give patients acetazolamide for twice daily for two days and antibiotic drops, chloramphenicol, what we've used in the UK for seven days. Now, post-operative steroid is important due to the inflammation and in our practice, we prescribe dexamethasone drops two hourly in the initial period. And that tends to be for around two weeks or so. And then if the inflammation is minimal, we gradually taper off the topical steroids. Most people will have six to eight weeks of treatment. And depending on what you're trying to achieve, you can either stop the patient's normal glaucoma medications or you can continue with them post postoperatively. What were your results? What were your findings? So we, your, your sample was 84 eyes of 84 patients who, who met the inclusion criteria. And the mean IOP dropped from 18.7 preoperatively to 13.3, 13.8, and 14 millimetres of mercury at the one, two, and three years time point. So that represents a drop of 28%, 26%, and 25% at one, two, and three years. With respect to the criteria for failure, by the three-year time point, 49 over 84 patients, that's 58%, had met one or more of the criteria for failure. What adverse events were were observed? I'm, I'm not talking about failure here. Yeah. So in, in common with other ECP studies, the complication rate was, was low. So nine patients, 10.7% of our sample had a significant complication. In 8.4%, that was cystoid macular edema, and there was one case of prolonged corneal edema. 
In all of these cases, the complication resolved with no long-term adverse outcome. We, we did, in addition, have a single case of iris intraocular lens capture, which did not require intervention. This study demonstrated a three-year failure rate, as, as you said, of almost 60%. How does this compare with other non-transcleral glaucoma surgeries? So, yes, yeah, so 58% classified as failure. In, in 40%, this was due to inadequate intraocular pressure drop. And 18%, it was further surgery, with half of those further surgery being SLT. So there's no head-to-head studies comparing ECP to trabectoma or MIGS. There are several reports of the three-year outcomes of trabectome, and the IOP drop seems similar to what we were reporting in our study, but it's complicated by different success criteria. Now, with respect to MIGS, as far as I'm aware, the only MIGS procedure which has published three results is the eye stent. And uh, in the paper, we do spend some time comparing your results to the three-year published results of the of FACO eye stent. Now, the, the eye stent paper didn't classify, didn't use a classification of success or failure as such, but they reported a 20% drop in IOP at three years, whereas we reported a 25% drop. However, in the iStent paper, they reported a medication drop of, of one medication on average, whereas we, we did not find that. So, again, it's not a head-to-head study, but based on the limited data, data the results seem similar. Uh, I think to, to get the answer is one better than the other, we would require a, a head-to-head comparison. Cataract surgery itself is known to lower intraocular pressure. To what extent can you attribute the reduction in intraocular pressure you observed in in ECP to ECP as opposed uh, to the cataract surgery itself? Yes, well, Josh, I think that's a good question. And I think it's it's one which I think should always be asked about procedures which are being combined with with cataract surgery. I think anyone who, who does cataract surgery is aware that the eye pressure does appear to drop afterwards. But I think angle closure patients aside, the evidence does suggest in the medium to long term that the eye pressure does rise again. There was a quite exhaustive review in the meta-analysis in the Journal of Glaucoma last year, which suggested that on average in glaucoma patients, three years after FACO alone, the pressure had reduced by 9% on preoperative levels. So in this study, we found a 25% drop. So that suggests really we are getting more than the, the FACO effect here. Looking at the efficacy and and the safety profile of ECP, would it be more appropriate to group ECP with MIGS procedures? Well, to some extent, I I think it would. I mean, like MIGS, what ECP is is aiming to be is to be a quick procedure. When you become experienced at it, it takes five minutes or so. Uh, It aims to be effective, but also to be safe with a good good safety profile, and also not to unduly influence the success rate of any later glaucoma drainage surgery that's needed. But but I think uh, I prefer to think of it as another option. So it's separate from MIGS, and it's separate from traditional glaucoma drainage surgery. And I think think that can be justified because in, in patients who've had FACO ECP, and if you remain unhappy with the pressure, then we can, depending on the individual, consider either MIGS or trabeculectomy. Having done this study, in what context do you employ ECP? And who is a good ECP candidate as opposed to, let's say, a, a goniotomy candidate? So in, in my clinic, if I see a patient with uncontrolled glaucoma who's, who's on maximal tolerated medical therapy and, and also had SLT, I'm thinking, are we are we heading here for trabeculectomy? I, I always 
stop for a second and ask myself, do, do I need to put them through a trabeculectomy? It has, it has a good success rate, but it's a fairly long surgery time. It's quite exhaustive follow-up, and there is quite significant risk with trabeculectomy. And, and sometimes the answer to that question is yes, you know, they do require a trabeculectomy. But I, but I find if they have any degree of cataract, and of course, you know, most of them do. Uh, and if a t- so 25 to 30% drop in pressure would be enough for them, then I think a FACO ECP is a good option. I, I approach it with the patient by saying that in the long term, they may require trabeculectomy. But in the first instance, it would be good to remove their lens. And by removing the lens, we're preparing the eye for later glaucoma drainage surgery. And then we can combine this with a laser and it will only take an extra five to ten minutes and, and the laser may allow them to either avoid or at least delay glaucoma drainage surgery. Now, I, I find this is a particularly useful approach in elderly patients. My, my uh, practice is mainly middle-aged to elderly Caucasian patients and the, the quicker surgery time, the less recovery time, the less clinic visits that's required compared to trabeculectomy for many, particularly the, the very elderly patients, is, is in, in my mind worth the, the drop in efficacy in this group. I, I, uh, you know, I think we must always bear in mind with glaucoma surgery that we can't just measure success in terms of intraocular pressure. What works best for a 45-year-old with uveitic glaucoma may not be the best thing for, for an 85-year-old. In, in our study, in, in common with many glaucoma studies, our mean age was 79. And we had over 9% of our, of our group died within the three years of the study. So, you know, many of these people who are seeing, uh, they don't need eye pressures of 12. They, they just need a procedure which won't cause havoc in their life due to clinic visits and, and, and months and months of eye drops. But, we'll, but a procedure which will drop their pressure and, and re- ensure their vision remains adequate for their the lifetime. I think there are some cases where I haven't found it useful. So if the intraocular pressure is very high, so certainly 30 or over, or if the intraocular pressure is low. So if you have a patient who's progressing and their eye pressure is 14 to 15, then and you feel you need to intervene there, then really it's still the only procedure which is likely to help them is, is a trabeculectomy. Now, where MIGS fits into this picture, I think remains unclear. I, I personally do the, the Zen stent, but, but I find, for example, that the Zen stent uh, can be challenging in people with bad ocular surface disease, which, which of course, is a, is a significant portion of our glaucoma patients. And, and ocular surface disease in East with ECP is not, not a great concern. Just to summarise, I think overall my take-home message from this study is that FACO ECP does reduce eye pressure, but in many patients it may not reduce it very much in the long term. But I think this needs to be weighed against the potential benefits of this procedure compared to trabeculectomy. And I think that's especially the case in elderly patients. Michael, thank you very much for the generosity of your time. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. Michael Smith comes to us from Exeter Eye in Exeter, United Kingdom. His paper, Phaco Emulsification and Endocyclophotocoagulation in Uncontrolled Glaucoma, three-year results, appears in the September 2018 issue of the Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Ask questions of Dr. Smith or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. 
be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.